It's the 16th of July and you're listening to Kopi Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research here in Singapore. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our 22nd episode. Our guest today is Dr. Korhoi, Chief Economist of EMRO. Uh, if you expand that, that would be ASEAN Plus 3 Macroeconomic Research Office. A veteran economist and central banker, Dr. Kor began his career in 1981. He had the IMF. He was there on various capacities all the way till 1996, after which he came back to his native Singapore to join MAS, the Monetary Authority of Singapore. There, Dr. Kor served as the Assistant Managing Director from 2001 to 2009. And then he went back to the IMF, stayed till 2016, at which point he returned to Singapore as the current avatar of Chief Economist AMRO. Dr. Kor, welcome to Kopi Time. Thank you, uh, Taiman, for inviting me to this podcast. It's our pleasure. Uh, we will begin with the genesis of AMRO. I understand it was set up about a decade or so ago. Uh, walk us through who and for what purposes uh, did AMRO get set up? Yeah, so it was set up uh, in 2009 after the global financial crisis. Uh, basically, the uh, finance minister of the ASEAN plus three countries, meaning the 10 ASEAN countries together with China, Japan, and Korea, uh, agreed to establish an independent regional surveillance unit right, to promote objective uh, economic surveillance. So in 2011, uh, it was formally established uh, as a company in Singapore. And then it became an international organization in 2016. So as I mentioned, uh, the objective of the MRO is basically to conduct macroeconomic surveillance of the countries in the region and also to support the uh, CMIM, which is uh, the Chiamai Initiative Multilateralization. This is a financing facility that was set up to provide financing support to the countries in the region in case they get hit by liquidity shocks. Very good. Um, Dr. Kaur, in this region, uh, including in Singapore, uh, we have various other multilateral organizations ranging from the IMF to ADB, as well as the World Bank and this CSEN um, based in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, some of them are engaged in providing financing and guarantees. Some of them are engaged in capacity building and the others do carry out advice to country authorities. Uh, help us ex understand how AMRO is differentiated. Well, let me start with the World Bank and the ADB. Uh, those are multilateral development banks. So they basically provide financing for projects, right? Uh, they do research, but they don't really conduct surveillance of countries. Uh, then you have uh, the CSEN, which is a training center set up by the regional central bank to provide training to the staff. So again, it's quite different. Uh, they don't do uh, surveillance. The one that's most similar to MRO would be the IMF Regional Office, uh, which they have an office here in Singapore, but which conducts surveillance on Singapore and Singapore and Malaysia. Um, but you know, IMF the headquarters in DC, and they are a global organization with 189 member countries, and their mandate is much broader, which is basically to safeguard the stability of the international monetary system. Here, our mandate is much more narrow, it's more regional. We are supposed to promote uh, financial stability within the region by conducting macroeconomic surveillance. Very good, makes sense. Um, since 
surveillance is at the core of your business. So let's start there uh, in terms of our deep dive into the regional outlook. Uh, share with us uh, your regional macroeconomic views. Uh, I would not ask you to go through the slog of every single member country that you have, but perhaps if we could touch on the pandemic response and protecting livelihoods that has been carried out by China, Indonesia, Singapore, and Vietnam. Yeah, okay. So let me start with the, the region as a whole, right? It's a very diverse uh, group of countries, ranging from advanced economy to emerging markets and then to developing countries. Uh, so you can expect that the performance in terms of dealing with the pandemic would vary across uh, the region. Uh, but by and large, the region has been done really well, I think, in um, the, uh, containing the, epide uh, the infection. Uh, so the total number of cases in the region is over 300,000 uh, compared with a global total of 13.3 million, right? Uh, and the death toll has been quite low also in the region. And within the region, most of the countries have already emerged from the lockdown, pretty much. Huh? Uh, but some countries are still struggling to, uh, con to uh, flatten the curve, so-called, and contain the infection rate. Uh, those two are Indonesia and the Philippines. Right? Uh, you mentioned those four countries. Uh, they're very diverse. Uh, China, as we all know, is the first one to got hit by the infection. And they have done a spectacular job in containing the infection. There have been outbreaks here and there, uh, but pretty much it's under control. And so because of that, they've been able to open up uh, much more fully, you know. And already, uh, I think production has bounced back above the pre-COVID level, right? Um, except for services sector, which is still uh, struggling a bit, uh, but in the goods segment, uh, manufacturing in particular, uh, growth has been, uh, you know, bounced back up. And just this today, I think uh, they announced the GDP growth for China of 3.2%, which is well above uh, uh, expectation. Uh, Singapore, and, and because of that, uh, they have not had to uh, enact pretty large uh, stimulus package to support the economy. Obviously, uh, you know, they have recently come up and uh, provide support for the SME sector, uh, you know, and also they realize the external uh, demand might be a bit weak, so they have also uh, decided to provide more infrastructure financing to uh, stimulate domestic demand. But it's pretty modest, the economic package that they have come up with. Uh, Singapore, uh, as you know, um, was hit by a second wave. Uh, and unfortunately, Singapore has a very large foreign workers uh, population, and because of because of that, and and the foreign workers are live in dormitories, uh, and they are you know very close to have physical distancing. So once they get the 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 dormitories get infected, it's very hard to uh, contain it. So as a result, uh, the infection rate you know uh, it's very high for a long period of time, and Singapore had to lock down the economy a second time, and it was very costly. Uh, but they locked down all the dormitories to prevent the, the virus from infecting, from spreading beyond the dormitories to infect the rest of the community. And that has been quite successful. Uh, so they bring down the infection rate now to you know, the low double digit, usually it's between 10 to 20 a day. Uh, some days it's in the single digit. Uh, 
So Singapore has also started to open up, uh, you know, uh, and but the dormitories will take a little bit more time to open up. But this uh, long lockdown period has been very costly for Singapore, and they had a you know a stimulus package of almost twenty uh, percent uh, of GDP. Uh, and but fortunately for Singapore, they have a a lot of fiscal savings built up over the years, and they're able to draw down the fiscal savings uh, to finance the the deficit. Uh, Indonesia, uh, I just mentioned, uh, still struggling to bring the infection rate down, but it's a sprawling archipelago, and maybe that's why it's harder to uh, you know, contain the in infection. Um, but you know they are also struggling, and they started opening up. And you know, so in Jakarta, uh, they seem to have uh, brought the inflation, uh, flattened the curve. Uh, inflation, the infection rate is slowly coming down. Uh, but other parts of Indonesia, uh, you know, are still quite high. Uh, but even so, I think the total number is quite low by group by you know, uh, if you compare to other big countries in the world. So we are hopeful that uh, you know. Um, in a few more weeks, you begin to see the infection rate coming down for Indonesia. But Indonesia uh, has also uh, enacted a relatively large uh, stimulus package to support uh, the economy uh, through this difficult period. And they have had to bust their fiscal rule. As you know, they try to keep cap their fiscal deficit below 3% a year. But because of the pandemic uh, and the need to support uh, you know, businesses and workers and households, uh, they expect the fiscal deficit this year will increase to about over 6%, right? Uh, but so far, you know, because of the pandemic and the collapse in demand, uh, the current account has actually, uh, uh, deficit has turned smaller. So uh, that has given them uh, some space. Uh, the, the currency is relatively uh, stable and inflation is low. And so they've been able to, to finance the fiscal deficit so far without any problem. Um, and Vietnam, I think it's one of the most successful countries in terms of containing the infection. Uh, they kept it to just below uh, 370 cases and no death. And because they've been so successful, uh, they've had, they haven't had to uh, enact very large uh, stimulus package to support the economy. And it's one of the few economies that we expect uh, will have positive growth this year. Uh, in fact, we expect growth this year to be about three, above 3%. Uh, so, you know, the experience has been quite diverse across the region. Indeed, indeed. And I think I have to sort of underscore two points that you made that I share wholeheartedly, but both points, I think that uh, there is still not proper appreciation in the markets or also among the analyst community. The first one is that the struggle of Indonesia and Philippines, despite, you know, fairly uh, uh, assertive, proactive measures of the authorities shows that we really don't understand the nature of the infection fully. Uh, anybody who tells you that is being fairly optimistic. And every day we see new developments and puzzles for epidemiologists and public health officials about the nature of the spread and the nature of the disease. For a while, we believe that in hot countries, it will not be a big deal. It's actually a pretty big deal. For a while, we thought that this would only affect the elderly, but it turns out the mortality may be less among the young, but they could be affected quite deeply, even if they don't die by this. And uh, and also the notion of spread 
where the conventional wisdom is it's through droplets, but now I see more and more studies showing that even aerosol spray, just the mere act of breathing could lead to um, spread, which of course makes it very difficult. And I'll score Dr. Kaur, as you pointed out, that these sprawling countries like Indonesia, Philippines, by geographical design, make it more difficult. Uh, some region may be under control and others are not. Short of you know stopping people from moving from one region to the other, you can't really control it, which is the same problem that the US has. Brazil has, has, and India also has, mm. right? And the other point that you mentioned in Singapore's case, the migrant worker situation, you know, the last few days, reading the stories of the U.S., looking at the pandemic spreading among the agricultural workers and the migrant workers in Florida and Arizona, I'm sort of reminded of the exact same dynamic, that whenever you have a worker community living in close quarters, it doesn't really matter whether it's Singapore or the U.S., the outbreak becomes uh, difficult to contain. Uh, great. Um, I wanted to ask one overarching question about your uh, so the staff forecast right now. Um, are you comfortable with your latest published forecast, or do you fear that they're characterized by further downside risks? Uh, well, we revised our latest forecast just about a month ago, uh, and I think our baseline scenario uh, is pretty uh, realistic. We assume a relatively severe recession in the U.S. and Europe. And basically, we assume that the U.S.-China trade tension will remain elevated and maybe, you know, get a bit worse. Uh, on the other hand, we are not assuming any second wave, uh, and we know that's a risk, right? Uh, because as we just discussed, uh, we don't really understand the virus well enough. And, you know, we still keep seeing uh, second you know, uh, outbreaks, uh, episodic perhaps. But uh, this episode uh, outbreak can develop into a second wave if you don't take care of it. Uh, so, based on those uh, uh, assumptions, uh, you know we are forecasting that the region will suffer a sharp uh, decline in growth rate, but it will still be a slightly positive. You know, and, but that's mainly because of China. You know, and as I mentioned earlier, China has already uh, you know bounced back up again. Uh, the question is how strong the growth will be this year. In our forecast for China is that it will grow by 2.3% uh, this year. Uh, but eight of our uh, 14 economies will be uh, suffering negative growth. Uh, so, you know, it's pretty diverse. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Vietnam is one of the few uh, that will also have positive growth. In fact, 3.2 is the highest that we have for the region. But uh, we are concerned about, uh, you know, this uh, second wave and also, you know, other risks uh, such as uh, uh, a relapse in the global economy uh, and a further escalation of the U.S.-China uh, trade tension, uh, which doesn't seem to be getting any better. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the very large, uh, uh, you know, Fiscal package will mean that uh, indebtedness will increase in the public sector and there will be damage to the balance sheet of the corporate sector and businesses. And it's still not very clear uh, how you know, quickly they'll be able to repair the balance sheet and emerge out of that. Uh, that could be another drag on growth that's not uh, no, uh, fully factored into our forecast. But when you have your dialogue with regional country authorities, do you 
warn them about the perils of debt or for the time being, it's okay, go out and run deficits and we'll worry about debt consolidation two, three years on the road? Uh, we were actually quite worried when the thing hit and we know that the countries have to, you know, have much bigger stimulus package to support the economy, whether they will be able to finance it or not. Uh, but as it turns out, uh, so far they have done well. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, in the in the initial stage, there was a big uh, outflow of uh, capital in the region and, you know, some countries came under pressure. But then, uh, you know, since then, market has stabilized pretty much, uh, you know, the currency have appreciated, the, the bond yield have come down, you know. So, so far up to now, uh, you know, financing has not been an, uh, an issue, especially for the emerging markets uh, like uh, Indonesia and Philippines and Malaysia. Um, but, uh, and I think, you know, provided uh, this signal to the market that once the pandemic is over, they're going to revert back to the former fiscal discipline, you know, consolidate the, the, the budget again. I think that they should be okay. Uh, then on the on the banking side, we know that uh, most of the banks are pretty well capitalized, right? Uh, I mean, there has been this forbearance uh, uh, by the regulators uh, because they realized that many uh, businesses will not be able to you know, pay the, repay the debt. Uh, so there's a debt moratorium, you know, in many countries. Uh, so we know the balance sheet needs to be fixed, uh, or and some banks may need to be recapped and all that. Uh, but I think that's something that we think is manageable, but we don't really have a good uh, view right now of how big the damage is or how big or, or the problem is uh, until you know probably in the next uh, few months uh, after you know we come out of this. I want to stay on this issue for just a little longer. Dr. Kaur, you and I both have spent uh, significant parts of our career in the IMF. And at least the days that you and I were there, we always advised country authorities uh, not to monetize debt, keep the central bank's operations separate from the central governments. But in this pandemic, starting with the West, but that, that notion seems to be spreading worldwide, is that you know far deeper coordination between fiscal and monetary authorities to take care of these big issuances. Uh, where do you stand as an economist on this issue? Um, well, you know, I think the world has changed <laughs> to some extent. Uh, we used to worry also a lot about inflation, right? Uh, and inflation has simply disappeared after the great moderation. Uh, and, you know, countries are struggling to get inflation back up again. Uh, I, but you know, I think it's at least for the for the advanced economy that seems to be the 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 default huh? with very low inflation and deflationary environment. And so because of that, they they've been able to increase the balance sheet of the central bank, you know, without uh, you know uh, seemingly without any cost, right? Uh, for the emerging markets, I'm not so sure, right? I think they are still uh, subject to this budget constraint. Uh, I think that, the, the, as I mentioned earlier, because of the pandemic, uh, the macro situation has changed because there's been a collapse in, in demand. And so as a result, the external position actually improved for most of the countries in the region. And also inflation has come down. And so that allows them to uh, borrow a lot more than you know uh, they would otherwise have been able to under normal times. Uh, but you know, next, uh, uh, situation we want to get out of, right? <laughs> uh, we want the economy to recover. We want uh, demand to go back up. And when that happens, I think, you know, the, the usual constraint will kick in again. And they have to show and demonstrate to the market 
that they are you know uh, fiscally prudent and you know the the balance sheets are strong uh so i i think that you know we are in a transition now uh, to to this uh, normalized uh, 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 environment but dr Kur, even in this rather abnormal extraordinary circumstances uh we saw deep volatility for emerging market assets in the months of February, March, April. After that, the big fiscal monetary bazooka in the West and followed by fiscal monetary response in this part of the world, we have seen major return of animal spirits and capital flows have come back to the region in a very big way. Mm -hmm. Spreads haven't compressed as much as they have in the West, but they've compressed substantially. Uh, are you worried about financial market instability, that a bit too much money and too much optimism in the financial markets, which is divorced from the economic reality? Uh, well, not in the region. Uh, you know, in the region, I think financial market has stabilized. Uh, they have not fully recovered, right? Uh, except for in the case of China, right? In the last few weeks, uh, the markets have really gone through the roof. Uh, but the... And I, I think the disconnect between market and the real economy is more in the U.S. and in the Western country, uh, Europe. Uh, and that's because of liquidity you know, by the central bank is helping to show up uh, the market. Here, uh, you know, the, I think the financial system is still pretty much a bank base. Uh, there have been some liquidity issues for some uh, countries like Korea and uh, Thailand. And the central bank have stepped in to, you know, uh, inject liquidity to make sure that the market continues to function in an orderly manner. But I, I don't see the big disconnect here in the region between the market and the real economy. I mean, my concern is that, you know, this uh, uh, capital flow volatility will come back again uh, after, you know, we get out of this pandemic situation. And they're going to be looking at the balance sheet and, you know, uh, 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 of the corporate and also of the government uh, pretty closely. And, you know, then you may get the usual volatility shocks again. Uh, absolutely. No, I, I share your uh, concern wholeheartedly. Um, you know, we can spend much more time talking about the very current conjun conjuncture, but that's not all AMRO does. You are looking at uh, important uh, research questions that involve also the medium term. Uh, you've built a solid research team over the years, um, and I've noticed a number of interesting analytical notes on your websites. Um, would you like to showcase a couple of things that have come out recently from your research team? Well, you know, we did a, a study on the credit contagion risk, right? Uh, actually, you know, as I mentioned in, earlier on, we are concerned about the financial distress uh, in the corporate sector and in the banking system uh, once we come out of this pandemic. And we want to basically highlight the importance that, that policymakers must take to address the situation. So in this study that we did, um, you know, we basically look at the risk of contagion not just from the bank uh, to its immediate creditor, other banks that, you know, in the wholesale market, but also because the banks are all interconnected, that uh, a, a risk in one bank can be magnified by the interconnectedness of the system, and, you know, and, and that becomes a systemic risk. Uh, so banks are not just connected to other banks directly, but also indirectly you know, through these other banks, uh, and also through, you know, uh, you know, 
market uh, perception and so it, it's sort of a, uh, a captured in our study by the risk to default uh, uh, ratio uh, and so we are able to 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 to, to show that you know uh, um, if, if there's an increase in the default risk for one bank this risk can be magnified across the, the system so it is just to emphasize to the regulators that you know we shouldn't take uh, you know look at the uh, individual banks but also look at the system as a whole Right, right. Um, and I think countries like China, this is a very big question. Uh, although yeah. right now the financial sector does not look under considerable no stress, uh, we still have the debt overhang issue. We have a structural slowdown independent of the immediate cycle and, and how that weighs into credit quality and credit risk is certainly going to be a question that both you and I have to worry about for years to come. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Coming uh, back to the region and the crisis response, um, you have already mentioned that you know there's probably no free lunch uh, like the way it is maybe for the U.S. because they have the privilege of printing U.S. dollars. There's a little tighter budget constraint for the region here. But still, um, should you, given the severity of the crisis, should the regional economies spend more? And if they have to? I mean, would you advise them in some specific areas they should uh, spend? And then, of course, the question then immediately leads to, you know, how would they finance those additional spending? Yeah, I think this is a, a big challenge to many of the uh, policy makers here. Uh, obviously, uh, the capacity to spend uh, varies across the country. And many, you know, in, especially developing and even the emerging mark, uh, market economy, they probably could have spent more to support the economy if they uh, had the capacity. Uh, so, but already, I think they are, by instinct, quite cautious about overspending. Uh, but, you know, after, when they get, now they're in the recovery phase and they need to pull back some of the uh, uh, spending, especially, but if they do it too precipitously, it could it could cause the economy to uh, go into a downturn again. Uh, so it, it you know how you manage the exit uh, from this stimulus package, right? Uh, is quite important because uh, you know if the economy is recovering very strongly, you can probably pull back uh, much faster. But at the same time, you also want to be able to uh, uh, support uh, some sectors of the economy. Uh, because we know in the new normal that certain sectors are not going to be uh, viable or certain uh, com companies and firms and they have to let them go, right? And that's going to be very painful. On the other hand, we know that in the new economy, the digital uh, uh, economy, e-commerce uh, are going to be much more important and you want to be able to uh, uh, spend more money to support that, those industries. Uh, so it's, it's going to be quite challenging for uh, policymakers going forward. You know, I wouldn't say that they should. Uh, when I say they need to go back and, and display fiscal discipline, they need to also reprioritize the way they spend money to support industries which are going to do well in the in the new normal, and at the same time, you know, maybe provide some support to those that has to restructure, and even the, even even in the labor market, uh, it's not very clear that you know a lot of uh, the unemployed workers will be able to get back to uh, work again. 
so I think I think it's not uh, it's going to be quite challenging going forward for for those policy makers. And in terms of the financing, uh, well, you know, it's 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 tough, right? Uh, but they, they, I think on on balance, I would say that uh, they need to scale back the kind of a uh, uh, fiscal deficit that they had uh, this year uh, to one that's more um, manageable. And if they signal to the market uh, strongly their commitment to fiscal discipline, I think they they should be fine. You know. So they have to try to reprioritize and maybe uh, you know end up with a somewhat bigger fiscal uh, package than they otherwise would have. Moving from fiscal to external, uh, back in the days, I mean, from the taper tantrum in 2013-14 uh, to going back to the Asian crisis in '97, we've always worried about reserve adequacy in the region, the capital flow volatility when there is a risk of in the global market environment. Um, do you worry about the external risks and do we have sufficient buffers in the region or do we need Chiang Mai plus three to take care of that? <laughs> no, we always worry about the external risks. <laughs> uh, and that's the reason why the Chiang Mai initiative was set up. Uh, but, you know, so, but I think the, the, most of the countries in the region have always been worried about the external uh, risks and they have built up a significant uh, reserve, right? If you look at the level of reserve uh, held by most of the countries in the region, uh, they are actually quite uh, substantial, quite adequate in, the, in, in terms of months of imports. I think the average for the region, if I remember correctly, is about six, seven months. Uh, and then in terms of coverage of short-term debt, they are more than a year. Some of them are two, three years uh, in the case of the Philippines. Uh, and in, in terms of the IMF uh, adequacy ratio, they also range between uh, 150 about 120 for some of them, and more than uh, close to 200 uh, for some of the others. So overall, I think the the, the reserve they've accumulated over the years have been uh, quite ample, actually, for some countries, and at, even for those which are a bit vulnerable, uh, by by the IMF matrix is adequate, right? But we know that uh, you know in the in the taper tantrum, in the tantrum uh, the shorts can be even quite large, uh, even though you have an adequate reserve. Uh, so that's why we have uh, a second line of defense, uh, the Tiama Initiative, CMIM, uh, which is supposed to provide uh, an additional buffer to those countries which are vulnerable to you know, a, a, a shock, right? Uh, so, but so far during this pandemic, uh, you know, the, they have been able to manage this uh, volatility quite well, uh, but you know the facility is still there, and you know, and they, and and it's I think comforting to know that you know you can uh, 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 rely on the facility if you need to uh, in the event that they shot you have a really big shot that hits you. You saw a few months ago when the dollar funding crunch was taking place worldwide. The Federal Reserve came up with that uh, FEMA facility, which allowed any central bank that had an account with the Fed in New York uh, could carry out a bit of a repo operation. So not exactly a swap. It was more expensive than a typical swap agreement. But the countries did have some access to some cheap funding. So clearly, the need for dollar funding at times of stress has not gone away. Uh, although you could argue that the best facility is the one that does not need to be tapped because the mere existence of that is sufficient to 
LA market expectations and concerns. Um, so what's your sense that the impact of CMIM has had a galvanizing impact on markets' perception on the buffers available in Asia? Uh, well, you know, the CMIM is, uh, a, a, as I said, a regional facility, right? The swap line that the, the Fed provides is a US dollar facility and it's, uh, it's much, and because of the nature of the swap and the repo, the FEMA, right, uh, is available without, uh, uh, you know, uh, on request, basically, right? As long as you have the treasury bills to repo, right? You get, right. You get the, the, the liquidity immediately. So that's the advantage that they have. Uh, with the CMIM and other facilities, uh, you know, because they are swap lines and all that, they will always be, you know, trying to set it up, will always take a bit more time. Uh, but, you know, in the case of the Chema Initiative, it's supposed to be a quick dispersing uh, 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 facility that can be arranged within a short period of time. Uh, two weeks actually about that. Um, so, but as I said, uh, you know, this is an additional line of credit, and I think you know, I can see the countries in the region uh, becoming much more uh, secured, much more comfortable over time in managing the external vulnerability that uh, they see the the CMIM really as a second line of defense, you know, and they will only resort to it if the need arises, you know. But it's comforting to have it uh, there. Right. I mean, there is nothing wrong with having a wide range of insurance options. Uh, over the last decade, we have seen expansion of CMIM. We have seen bilateral swap lines being set up by between PBOC and various ASEAN countries. And of course, we have the Fed uh, twice in the last 12 years uh, taken a fairly strong role in providing dollar liquidity. So yes, as long as... Um, dollar remains king in the world of currencies. I think the need for dollar funding will remain and dollar assets and liabilities will be issued and traded in our part of the world uh, as much as they have been in the past. Um, Dr. Kaur, I want to ask you two questions. Uh, one is, uh, I think there was this recent announcement about the CMIM an amendment, uh, which I understand probably made the facility a little more flexible. So if you could touch on that, and after that I want to ask you, uh, longer-term question about uh, regional reliance uh, on trade and tourism, but I'll, I'll ho hold that question first. Just address the issue of the 23rd of June amendment. Uh, yeah, so this is something that we've been working on for some time, you know. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the facility was set up in 2011, right, uh, when the Chiamai Initiative, which is a network of bilateral swap, was multilateralized. And then they increased the, the size of the facility to 140, 120 billion at that time. And then in 2014, they doubled it to, uh, you know, uh, 240 billion, right? Uh, and they also increased the, the, the lean portion to 30% at that time. So, but, you know, so in the last, since then, we've been doing a lot of test run, you know, to try to make sure that the facility is uh, uh, operate, you know, operationally ready, you know, so that when, if a country, uh, wants to access it, uh, you know, it's immediate. Uh, because it's a pretty complex uh, arrangement with 14 central banks having bilateral swap. And we need to basically work out the operational manual, the SOP, uh, you know. And so that's what we've been doing over the last uh, several years. There was also a, a precautionary line that was uh, set up in 2014. Huh? And that's similar to the SCL and the PLL in the IMF. 
where basically, you know, we a country has to be have sound macro fundamentals, then they can approach, uh, you know, to have a line of credit uh, and without conditionality. Uh, again, you know, it's, it's a new facility and we need to work out, you know, the, the, the modus operandum to see how it works and all that. So all that was uh, done in the last few years and this amendment that you just mentioned is basically the signal that we have completed our uh, basically you know, work and that you know the, the facility is now operationally ready uh, in case any any country wants to you know avail themselves of this facility. Yeah. Right. Okay, so that takes me to the um, broader question and I think something that we all have to think uh, deeply about the last two, three decades have been great for Asia, the reliance on trade and tourism and progressive trade integration and capital flow liberalization. Is the time for growth from those measures sort of run its course? Do we need to rethink the drivers of growth because of all this geopolitical trade war related headwinds and so on? Uh, or do you still believe in the, uh, the promise of mm -hmm open markets and trades uh, to carry Asia forward? Um, okay, you know, we in our flagship, latest flagship report, chapter two, the thematic chapter, we actually look at this growth strategy for the region, uh, and but that was before COVID, right? Uh, but it's still, I think the, our, our, I think our, our study is quite uh, relevant. Uh, and I think the COVID, the pandemic has basically revealed vulnerabilities in the system, right? The globalization, the disruption to uh, the, uh, the supply. And so because of the disruption, uh, there's been cause for, you know, there may be uh, there's excessive dependence on this globalized uh, supply chain. Uh, and maybe countries need to, you know, insource or, or reshore some of the production. Uh, but I think, you know, and, and, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's just that the uh, global value chain, you know, has evolved over the years and has become super efficient, I would say. Uh, it accounts for 50% of the, the trade, right, uh, in the global system. And, and I think that, you know, one can uh, reconfigure the, the supply chain, you know, to make it more resilient. So, for instance, uh, I think one of, one of the lessons from this pandemic is that you need to diversify, you know, so that if, if one of your sources get uh, clobbered by uh, a natural disaster or, or some kind of shock, that you can then uh, rely on other sources. And so you, we see that, for instance, in Singapore with the food uh, su supply, right? Uh, Singapore is very dependent on Malaysia for food. Uh, but, you know, when there was a shortage of eggs, they decided to, they were able to uh, buy from Poland and Korea, right? So, you know, diversification, I think, is the way out, you know, to address the issue of resilience rather than trying to pull back, you know. Uh, and even in the case of uh, medical supply, you know, face masks, PPE, I mean, I think there was a lot of concern that there's too, too much reliance on, on China for this uh, uh, medical supply. But, you know, the, the reality is that even in China, there was a shortage of this uh, face masks and PPE in the first instance, right? Uh, so I think no country expected this uh, shock anyway. So there will be a global uh, shortage in any case. But what, but then China was able to come out of it, and then they became the major supplier of all this uh, medical supply to the rest of the world, right? So I think you know. So I think realistically, I would say that we you know we should realize 
the, the there are some uh, vulnerabilities in the system and try to address it by you know preferably by building resilience in the system through diversification, building up uh, reserves and all that. But the system is is very efficient and it continues to you know be a, a driver for growth in the world. And many of the countries in the region, especially the developing ones like uh, Cambodia, Laos, uh, you know, Myanmar, they are still uh, leveraging on, on this uh, global supply chain to grow and, you know, to, and attract investment. So I, I don't agree that we need to move away from trade and tourism. As tourism, talking about tourism, tourism is the next big uh, uh, driver of growth in the region. I think we are seeing a, the emergence of a huge middle class in, in Asia, and many of them want to travel. And so this is going to you know, uh, drive the tourist industry in many of countries in the, in the region, especially Indonesia, uh, Philippines, you know, which has a lot more potential in terms of growing the industry. Right. The, the potential is undeniable. Uh, when we can realize the potential, I suppose, depends, number one, on when this pandemic ends and when we have an effective treatment. And after that, how we force the uh, recovery and, of course, how much cost we have to incur to, to survive till that moment comes. Uh, Dr. Kaur, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we wish Emro all the best. Uh, we need regional institutions like yours to support financial stability. And I think uh, you're playing an integral part. And the same to your researchers coming up with invaluable insights. Uh, we're very thankful. Thank you, Timer. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. And I hope that uh, you know we get out of this soon. Uh, I think uh, one of the uh, when you talk about tourism, I think one of the most uh, more hopeful uh, development now is the vaccine, which seems to be coming along quite nicely. So I hope you know that's uh, all well for the future of the region. <laughs> Indeed, fingers crossed for that. Uh, thanks to our listeners also for your time. Uh, you can find all of our research publications and multimedia by Googling DBS Research Library. The Kopi Time series is available now on all major podcast platforms as well as on YouTube. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.